The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm your host. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And this morning, we're going to be talking to Paul Balow. He's the author of The Essential Digital Interview Handbook. Paul, who has a PhD, an MBA, and an MSW, is founder and CEO of Phone Interview Pro, which is a service for job seekers who want to perfect their telephone job interviewing skills. And you've seen him on the Today Show, Forbes, U.S. News and World Report. Um, Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Paul. Oh, Catherine, thanks for having me. Well, it's very appropriate. This is radio communication. That's what we're all about, okay? <laughs> but uh, so your new book, The Essential Digital Interview Handbook, I found fascinating because one of the things that I didn't realize that you mentioned, I think, in the beginning of the book is that 35% of all businesses in the United States use Skype as their primary means of communication. So it's really important, I guess, if we're in, uh, for all of us, if we want, we're going to be interviewing uh for jobs, we're going to be interviewing why we're at the job, Skyping, um, and I'm not sure that most Americans, or at least ba- I'll say baby boomers, n- know how to use Skype, know what well, Skype is and how to use it in business. Right, well, so like you have a valid point there. In, in the book, it's referring to interviewing, but it's really any means of communication over the web in terms of using a webcam camera. Um, but the interesting thing is, is when we did the research, the baby boomers and the older generation actually do a better job in connecting over a digital interview as opposed to young people. Why? Well, the, the young people have been taught incorrectly. The older people realize, I need to understand how to do this, and they spend the time researching it and perfecting the skill. Younger people just say, ah, I'm going to go talk to someone, I'm going to flip up my laptop and start talking. And they don't uh, discern between an actual interview and talking to their girlfriend. So it's very interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Okay, let's talk specifically about that then. Okay, the young people figure, yeah, it's the same thing as when they're Skyping to their friends, and it's not. So what Mm -hmm. are the differences? Because older people usually aren't necessarily Skyping to their friends. They may, you know, some of my friends will Skype to their kids if they're studying abroad, that kind of stuff, but, you know, family. Um, So what are the differences? I mean, that's what the book is all about. What are the nuances of Skyping, not just for social Reasons, yes, but absolutely. Business. So, yeah. yeah. So, any any means of communication of the web. So, be it you know, let's talk specifically for jobs right now. So, for jobs, you have to have an emotional connection over this digital communication channel. And what normally happens or tries to get conveyed in a face to face meeting usually doesn't translate very well over a digital channel. So, your mannerisms, your facial expressions, do not necessarily get communicated clearly. So things that you have to do are, are simple things, such as one, one theory is to create your own little studio. So 
you don't want to have your dirty laundry in the back of background when you're trying to do a digital interview, right? That's just a no-no. You want to make sure you have the right equipment, and the right equipment is having the right camera. So any camera, any laptop you buy today or any PC you buy today comes with a camera. Those cameras are of, of low quality. What you need to use is a high-definition camera, a name-brand camera, um, but make sure it's HD. That will significantly increase the connection and video component of connecting with the person on the other end because 55% of communication is through facial human connection. So the clearer you could see your face in HD, the greater the communication on the other end. All right, so uh, let's stop there because yeah, sure, I'm absolutely. someone who's because this is really important, and I think that I mean I've had experience. I do uh, commercials, for instance, local, right. regional kinds of commercials, and for a thirty second commercial, it can take half a day for them to mm. to, to yeah. shoot it, right? <laughs> right. And so right. your hair has to be done professionally, your makeup oh, has to be done professionally. So what do you do? Particularly, I'm saying particularly with women. Maybe it's the same with men, but mm. how? Do, you know, most and when p- people do end up skyping, and I see them trying to do this professionally, you know, their hair is a mess. They don't right. have the light makeup on. <laughs> so, right. So you want to you, so get the concept of being a movie star. But you're not only the movie star, but you're the director, you're the writer, you're the, you're setting up the design studio, and you're you're the teleprompter. All of these are what you have to do. So you have to get into that concept of creating your home studio. So you got to get the right camera, you got to get the right mic, you got to get the right lighting, you got to get the right background, you got to get proper, you got to wear the right clothing, you want to make sure you don't wear too much jewelry, you want to make sure you don't show too much skin, you want to show skill, not skin. So you really want to get into this world of creating your own little studio, uh, just like, just like on, on your radio show, right? You're, you have a studio, it's set up to communicate precisely, you know, over the radio. You have to get that mindset when you're doing digital interviews. You have to understand that you're running your own 60-minute show. Um, so you want to you compare that to what's going on in the real world. So if you don't but have Paul, the right camera... should there be some people, I'm listening to you, are there some people who should not be doing a digital interview? I mean, let's face it, they don't, no matter what they do to their hair or their face or try to connect emotionally or have the right background or, you know, setting up their studio, it, they just aren't going to be able to pull it off, not a good idea? may not have the choice. You know, you're interviewing for a position, the company says we like to set up a digital interview. But you're going to say no. Yeah. You know, <laughs> no hard. and goodbye, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, okay, I, I so want work the with job what you and have. I, want to, I want you to come into my office. No. Right? A digital interview is just like coming into the person's office. It's just a different communication. It's hard to say no, so you have to be ready. So you have to optimize all of these things that you're talking about, all right? Well, you have to. I think the first thing we really have to convince your listeners is to get into the right mindset. First, don't be afraid. Do the research on how you do it properly. Think about being your own little studio and all the roles that have to occur in a studio performance. To your point, you, you do a commercial, it takes really two, three days for even a three-minute commercial. It's a lot of time and energy. It, once you get it down, it should literally take you 10 minutes to get everything up and running once you have the right equipment, the right mindset, and everything set up. And that's what you're trying to get people to understand. It, it's not, okay, I have a, a digital interview. I'm going to flip up my laptop and rock and roll. That is not going to do it. 
That's great if you're talking to your girlfriend or your boyfriend. It's not going to work when you're trying to connect on a human emotional level over the digital channel. Paul, why is it when some I get these digital uh, conversations sometimes or communications, people tend to, wherever they put the camera, it's looking up at the person and you don't right. feel like you're looking right into, <laughs> as you say, you have to look into their eyes. You're supposed to connect, I say, emotionally. I think you have to keep saying that over and over. But it kind of looks like someone sitting on the floor taking a picture of them. That seems like one of the big mistakes that people make when they're doing these digital communications. Catherine, that's an excellent point. So that goes back to the fact of having the right equipment. If you have your laptop and you have the camera that you have to keep moving your laptop screen back and forth, you're never going to get the right angle. So you have to get a camera, high-definition camera, and get the tripod. You want to have eye level. You, know, when you, you don't want the camera shooting up your nose, and you don't want the camera shooting down on the top of your forehead. That's just not going to do it. And also, psychologically, you know, if you're looking down at that person, you're, you're, you know, you're perceived as being dominant. And if you're looking up at that person, you know, you don't want to, you know, you want to be subservient. So you want to make sure you correct the behavior. And the right behavior is eye level. Now, it's very foreign to most people to be looking at a camera, right? Unless you're, uh, you know, you're a Hollywood star or a Broadway actress or a newscaster. So what we've done in the lab, and we've tested this, is to actually have the candidate who's seeking out work go into LinkedIn Find the person who will be interviewing over the web. Find that picture, download it, print it out, cut a little hole in it, and put the camera lens through that hole. So you're actually looking at the camera even though you're actually looking at a picture of the person. And we've seen significant improvement in terms of body language, uh, vocal usage, tone of voice increasing that connection over the web because they don't realize they're looking at the camera. They feel they're looking at that person. Um, But you really want to make it all at eye level. So you want to make sure it's eye level. You're looking at the photograph, but there's a little hole in there and the camera is there and it makes it more human. You also want to, obviously, once you have the camera, you want to make sure you have the right lighting. You want to have three lights, one to your right, one to your left, and one behind you. And you want to get it so that you, you don't become phantom of the opera. And phantom of the opera syndrome is the fact that half your face is dark and the other half is is white. And, uh, you know, you, you can see this in some of the YouTube videos that are out there. You know, some have some really good content, but it's really hard to see anything. Yeah. Some of them are great, as you say. Some of them are hideous. And most of them fall somewhere in between, I would say. Um, one of the things also, I mean, that's the technical stuff, and uh, we, I want to continue with that. But also, I think in the very beginning of your handbook, you said you really have to create a mood. I mean, that's really important. Right. I mean, that's the same thing on the radio or any kind of communication that you're doing publicly. But what you, you know, you, you when you're preparing to do this interview, you know, you want to smile, you want to have an attitude like I'm going to be successful. You don't want to have this depressed, you know, feeling thinking about depressing kinds of things because that <laughs> comes across in the interview and on your facial expressions. There's no question about it. So talk to us about this because that's really, I think that's a very key point that you make. Yeah, I mean, to create the environment, that goes back to having the right camera, right audio, get the right lighting, right? It's, it's, you know, it's, it's like a romantic date in your house with your wife. You have the right lighting, you have you know, the right food, um, and then you have to have, in your digital interviews, you have to have the right background. And that, those elements create the right environment for you to connect. 
you want to have eye-to-eye contact. You want to make sure you understand how you say hello during a digital interview. Obviously, you can't shake hands. So the way you say hello in a digital interview is the bowing of your head. You don't show the people the top of your head, but you're sitting down and you're acknowledging them, eyes right at that camera and, and looking at the camera in just a slight bow. Um, not like in Japan where you're bowing all the ways and your back is, is, is almost at 90 degrees, 180 degrees, but a little bow. The other thing is you want to well, make Well, how many sure, degrees? I'm trying to visualize that because uh, I was yeah, just thinking a, just about... a little nod. You know, say a nod. A little nod, you know, but it, you know, it comes from the back, not like your head just bobbing like a, a bobble. Just a little nod. Eyes are front, just two or three, almost four degrees, looking at the camera, and then come right up. It's a, it's a normal way you're going to say hello on the digital interviews. No waving, obviously. It's just immature, child, or, you know, looking like a child, and you're trying to create your professional image. You just want a quick nod. You want to make sure that you're smiling. Now, not smiling where it's forced, but smiling when it's appropriate. You also don't want to be frowning, right? That, that's just going to be a, a complete turnoff. Uh, on the other end of the camera, and and really lean forward. Don't lean back. Try to lean into it, and obviously no standing around during your while walking around during your digital interviews. Right? You want to be sitting down, and you don't want to be rocking back and forth. Right? Not not like uh, Mick Jagger. Don't be like moving around. Just stay steady. Make sure you have the right chair because the back of your chair will be part of the image that you're portraying during your digital interview. So what do you sure do you with your a, hands? What do you do with your hands, and how far should the camera be, like, waist up? Is that what it's showing? Yeah, um, what we call it is a triangle of love. Um, so it should be across your chest, top of your head, to your right shoulder, to your left shoulder. That's the portrait in which should be reflected in your, in your, your lens. Hand motions we're a little concerned about because you don't know the, tech, the technology they have on the other end. So your hand movements may not actually be interpreted correctly. And since a large portion of your communication, over 55%, is your human face, and then 38% is the tone of your voice, we want to make sure that your facial piece is what's actually being portrayed so you can connect. Your hand motions aren't really going to emphasize as much as your facial recognition that the person is going to receive on the other end. So once again, it's that triangle of love Right shoulder to left shoulder to top of your head. You want to be framed. And then, obviously, in the background, you want to get a a piece of, it's called seamless paper. Um, It's relatively inexpensive, maybe $15 or $25. It's what you used to do in grade school when you used to take your picture. Make sure you get a a, a marble-colored blue or a marble-colored gray. Uh, Make sure it's not the same color of your suit or your dress because there's potential for you to disappear in the background there, right? Um, But you want to just make sure that's the environment that you're going to say it looks very professional, you, your face is framed, don't worry about the hand motion, just try to keep them right in front, you know, right in front of you at a camera's length. And then if you do get nervous, which most people do, have all your notes right behind the camera lens, almost as they do in a news broadcast. They have the teleprompter. Your teleprompter is basically getting all your notes at eye level right behind the camera, and having all your notes so you, in case you do get nervous, you can easily just read it off the notes. I think another thing is you don't want the dogs barking in the bar- background or the baby crying or the door <laughs> slamming or the telephone ringing. <laughs> right. Probably yeah, my that's phone. Funny. Yeah. I mean, even now in, in uh, my house, 
um, where I'm talking from in, in Trumbull, Connecticut, I actually have a sign in my office door on the air. Um, and they are throughout the house that everyone knows, not, you know, kids are off to school, my wife is downstairs, the dog is outside, so you want to have that sterile environment where there's no distractions. The other thing is you want to make sure also no one rings the doorbell, right? You know, you have someone coming and knocking on the door. So just say, How about you know, the UPS you know, guy or the FedEx yeah, guy, which is exactly. what happens to me? Yeah, yeah. And, and, yes, and this goes back to what we were talking about, you know, in the beginning. You have to think like a studio, a producer, um, a, a Hollywood star. You have to have this studio in mind that you have to create um, in order to create that correct environment because people are, are going to be listening to you and seeing you. And if you have all this distraction going on, they're not going to hire you. They're going to, your image will be destroyed. They will think you would be very unprofessional um, because of the fact that you did not anticipate the fact that your kids are running through the kitchen and you scheduled this meeting when there's all this noise in your house. You Here's another, think- I have something else, another dilemma. This actually happened to a friend of mine who was to receive a, an award uh, in Europe, and they were doing the interview and doing it through Skype. And mm-hmm. one of the things that she said that was difficult was there was a whole, I guess, jury of people she was who were interviewing her via Skype. Mm-hmm. And you can't detect what the reaction is to, to your, what you have to say. That makes it even more difficult. Yes, you're being interviewed, but then you've got, in this case, five other people sitting there uh, asking you questions, but you don't get the same kind of feedback that you would if you were sitting in a room with them. You know, it's different in this virtual situation. So how do you handle that? Right. So if I understand your question, she was in a, in a digital interview, but only sound or she didn't see the other people. No, she could see them and they could see her, mm-hmm. but it was, as she described it, all the visual, and she could hear them, obviously, mm-hmm. but the right. visual cues were not as clear. It was more difficult oh, for her to get a feel for it. the room, how they were responding right. to her answers. <laughs> right, yeah. so you're going to have to mentally picture the fact that they're connecting with you, because what happens is, is, is a lot of times what they do is, for digital interviews, they have group interviews. It, they all come to a conference room sometimes, and they set up the camera, and you really can't see the facial expression. You're going to have to psych yourself out and say, I'm doing a good job. I'm getting the right cues. So it's, it's no different than if you watch 60 Minutes, you know, or even, even your radio show, Catherine. You know, do you envision all the people who are listening and their facial reactions? No, but in your mind, you're saying, wow, I'm getting pot, and you know, you're psyching yourself out. And you're saying, I'm getting positive feedback. Yes, I'm getting a positive facial recognition here. This is good. The only way to do it, because it's, it, it's almost turning for your friend, it's almost turning into a phone interview. You don't have those social cues. You don't know if it's good or bad. You just have to assume you're doing the best job you possibly can. Yeah, that's, that's a good example. You, almost, it's like an, you have to think of it more in terms of audio, as you say, like on the radio, listen to yeah. the voices. And, yeah. and the, the way you might try to do this, is um, and there's a whole chapter about preparation. You really want to try to understand what the other person has. Are they going to be in a conference room? Are they going to be in your office? You know, in their office. And what kind of equipment do they have? Are they both? Are you using Skype? Are they using GoToMeeting? Is there going to be a conflict of software? So you want to make sure you know in this preparation. If the person that's doing the hiring has an administrative assistant. You want to try to befriend this person 
and hopefully have all that information before you start. And if you could truly befriend this person, have them set it up 10 minutes or 15 minutes prior to the actual digital interview. So you're all ready to go. The other person is all ready to go. They just have to come in and sit down and you're, and you're off to the races. Because the worst thing you want to do is you're scheduled for your digital interview and you're, you know, it's 11 o'clock for the interview and you're still trying to prepare. You're still trying to get the right connection. You're still trying to get your camera focused. It's almost like going to a Broadway show and they're still building the stage. That's just a no-no. That's just going to sort of put a dent in your professional image. So in the preparation, you want to try to prepare for yourself, but you also want to try to put a little pressure on the other person to make sure that they're going to be ready too. You want to be ready. You want to be sitting down. You want to have your, your camera ready, your lights ready, your audio ready, your background ready, all your notes ready. You're in your studio. You're, you're on the air signs are all on. You're ready to rock and roll. If the other person isn't ready, you just sit and wait for them. Well, as I'm listening to you, and I'm really thinking about this because I know when you go on radio, first of all, everything can go wrong with the two minutes. You know, your, mm-hmm. your computer doesn't work, the, mm-hmm. the, the microphone breaks down. And so, you know, you prepared or one can be more prepared if you have another, <laughs> you have another computer or you have your iPad, or you have all this kind of alternative stuff that you can use. I don't think the average person who doesn't do that uh, thinks about those things. And so they've got two things, not just the interview and the content and how you're going to get this job, but now you've got all this production stuff as well. Right. It yeah, adds, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. So that, that goes back to the fact you're the producer, you're the Hollywood star, you're the screenwriter, you're the makeup artist, you're the set designer. Uh, and also, you know, when we say you're the Hollywood star, that indicates you're the candidate that you're trying to do this. I mean, it is not easy. Um, and that's why we're trying to, you know, what the book tries to do is make it very simple for people to understand this to be successful so that they can get the face-to-face, so that they can then, you know, get back into the job force or, or get a better job. Yeah, and I think your book does that really well. I mean, it's a really easy read, and it's very specific. I mean, you know, one, two, three, I mean, it's specific in right. terms of what to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny because there's, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of data, data analysis, big data analytics that drive the content of the book, but no one wants to read that, right? I don't even want to read it for school, no. right? <laughs> you know? I mean, you don't want to you know? even read it to do your lectures and get on the radio and talk about the book. Right. So, yeah, no one's going to read it, right? So, so as I tell people, I'm a, a middle-class guy from Queens, New York, and that's how the book is written. It's very simple, very easy. It takes you maybe 45 minutes to 60 minutes to read it, and I guarantee you that the things that you'll learn will accelerate your professional image, either for a job or a meeting, or your communication over the web. Even if, even if you're a, a soldier in Afghanistan, you're trying to communicate with your family back home. These, these little tips really make it more emotionally connected to the other person. They do. And I talk about emotionally connected because we have a few minutes left. And before we got on the air, I said, you have a PhD and MBA. Well, you're finishing your PhD. Mm. I hope you're not going to be all but dissertation. But anyway, MBA, <laughs> MSW, uh, MBA and MSW, How? which came first and how helpful was either one or both in, uh, well, in writing your book and sort of in getting into this field? Well, the MBA came first. Uh, I have a double MBA, one in management, one in marketing, and I had a driving force. When you know, in in grad school, 
for B school, it was very interesting. I was very interested in, in people, organizations, and how you really drive them to success. The MBA program is more geared towards process, and I was always had this thirst to understand true people. And I met a few people, and I, I you know, they guided me to getting a MSW. Uh, so my master's in clinical social work at Fordham University, half of that program is really an, another MBA. It's all organization with a very deep emotional content to it. And then the secondary piece was the clinical piece. So I use my MSW, I would say, 60% every single day, and my MBA, 40%. I think the MBA MSW is an extremely unique and powerful combination because you really get the best of both worlds, right? You get, you get the business component of how you drive revenue, how do you optimize, and then you get the human piece, which is really how do you help people be successful. Yeah, I, I, it is. It's a perfect combination. And uh, not too many people have it, though. I mean, they either have the MBA or the MSW. And I, I'm asking that question because social yeah, workers I, struggle, really struggle with, you know, being media savvy. Uh, that's, uh, you know, I'm connected to the yeah. university here in, yeah, in New York, and we're putting trying to put it, maybe you should... You could help us. Yeah, <laughs> putting to. Yeah, get, let me know. Seriously, putting together a program to help social workers be media savvy because I mean they really lag in in in, uh, in right. being able to. I, do I that. understand that because when I was yeah. at the you know in grad school for my MSW, it was very interesting, right? So you know my professors always were driven to the fact that you have to, it's a business, right? You have to understand the business piece, and uh, you know social work really is is a very foundation based uh, op, you know degree in really trying to help people. But you really have come to the point where, you know, depending on what area, it's going to be money associated with this. And you have to sort of understand how you allocate that money in order to drive the best results for the people. So it's all exactly. business. It's nothing, you know, so, but that combination. And you really have to have the right mind for it because, you know, some people either have one, to your point, either have A or B. I just basically split my mindset into two pieces and combine the two. And a lot of the work that I've done in the clinical social work program at, at Fordham University is really what helped drive the emotional connection piece in the digital world. You have done that so well. I want to, well, first of all, I, the book, The Essential Digital Interview Handbook, what's the website that we can go to, you know, to learn more about the book, you, what you're doing? Oh, I, yeah. So, yes. absolutely. So, the book is available anywhere books are sold. So, wherever you see a, you know, a bookstore or Amazon, have at it. And, and the book is only, I think, $9, $10. So, it's not like this huge expense. Um, you can go to Phone Interview Pro. I have another book on phone interviewing. All the information's there. Um, and then we do phone evaluations, and we're starting to do digital interview evaluations to help people perfect their digital communication skills. Oh, digital interview evaluations. That's right. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, definitely we do, we do high-level evaluations <clears throat> for phone interviews. We, we do it for New York State Commission for the Blind, Massachusetts Commission for the Blind, a number of universities, and we build a whole digital communication evaluation system, and we're doing the same thing in the digital world. Well, you and I have to stay connected, definitely. Oh, we absolutely. could use you. Yeah. Happy to Did help. You? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay, so now I know where I can reach you. Um, <laughs> and uh, all right, we'll say goodbye for now, but definitely I will <laughs> connect with you off the radio. So um, 
Paul J. Bayload of the Essential Digital Interview Handbook. You can get it at bookstores anywhere. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Catherine, thanks for having me. It was great. Ton of fun. Okay, talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are going to take a short break now. I'm your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at Voice America and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Now there's a new destination for video content, VoiceAmerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your host of the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And I'm your social worker with a microphone, and I'm interviewing this morning as my second guest, Wendy Malillo. Wendy's the author of How McGruff and the Crying Indian Changed America, A History of Iconic Ad Council Campaigns. And Wendy was a staff writer for the Washington Post, earning a Pulitzer Prize nomination and an award presented by President Clinton from the White House Correspondents Association for her coverage of the 1992 United Way, I say scandal. Uh, she's also a professor at the School of Communications at American University, School of Communication at American University. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Wendy. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, interesting book. Um, well, the Ad Council, you know, it's sort of one of those, I guess, expressions. Everybody, if you say, do you know what the Ad Council is? They, say, they don't necessarily know what it is, but they've heard of it, brought to you by such and such in the Ad Council. That's, you know, that's what goes through my head. So uh, you're really talking about in this book um, media, communication, social history, and how the Ad Council has affected the way, I guess, the American culture in terms of how we think, how we behave, our attitudes toward what we buy. Uh, and it's not simply Madison Avenue who dictates this, but 
public service ads like the Ad Council. And Catherine, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book. I think people know the iconic campaigns. Certainly they know when you say Smokey Bear or Rosie the Riveter or McGruff the Crime Dog, an image immediately pops into mind. But the Ad Council itself is less well-known, and I was very interested in not only the campaigns, but the organization behind the campaigns. And that was one of the reasons why I really wanted to write the book. Okay, so let's talk about that. You're right, we are familiar with those. And another one that you have that uh, everyone knows, the United Negro College Fund, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Um, That's... I, I, I quote that one for some reason very often. But, okay, so let's talk about the history. Where, the Ad Council's been around for how long, 70 years or more? Yes, it started in 1942. And it's a really interesting story because, as I say in the book, um, I call it a brilliant public relations move on the part of the advertising industry. Because in the late 1930s, advertising was under attack in this country. Consumer advocacy groups were clamoring for federal regulation of the ad industry, arguing that advertising was bringing us goods and services that we didn't need. And the advertising industry fought back. um, And they came up with uh, a really interesting idea. Let's create a council that could provide public service advertising using the advertising medium and offer it up to a government at a time of war. And it worked beautifully. The government was in need of a way to communicate with citizens to buy war bonds, to to keep the war going, to conserve, um, to be concerned about treason and loose lips sink ships kind of thing. Um, So you remember that from the early 1940s. And that is the climate in which the Ad Council was born in. So was this Franklin Roosevelt's baby or part? Well, it came in, it started, um, you know, more on the part of the, um, the advertising industry itself um, wanting to ward off the threat of federal regulation. And then, yes, it, it, were, you know, it came in under Roosevelt and then Truman, and then it decided it changed its name to the War Advertising Council during the war, and then it decided after the war that it wanted to continue on, so it switched its name back. And so that's kind of the climate in which um, the organization was born. All right. So take us from there. That was that was sort of the birth, the beginning uh, of, of the Ad Council. And so then what happened? I mean, they were asking us to buy war bonds and, you know, supporting the government endeavors. <clears throat> so then what? Well, think of Smokey Bear. Um, this is the longest running public service advertising campaign in American history. But it is not... Um, In the early days, it did not start with Smokey. This campaign actually started in 42. It was one of the first ones that, that, you know, was done by the Ad Council. And the images that were prepared at the time were very frightful and patriotic in tone. So consider one. It's the face of a grinning Japanese soldier holding a lighted match. Um, under a slogan that says, careless matches aid the Axis. And then they followed up in 43 with a poster of Hitler and Tojo. Um, And so this was very interesting. However, these posters were very scary to school children, and teachers did not want to use them. 
1944, following the movie Bambi, which was very popular in this country, and for a time, the fire prevention campaign, you know, done by the U.S. Forest Service, experimented with Bambi um, as a character. But it did not want to get into all the negotiations it would have to do with Disney to get the rights to continue to use the Bambi image. And so they actually came up with the, a bear as an image for the campaign. And then Smokey was born in, in 1944. And that actually changed the whole nature of that, and it gave the campaign a way of existing beyond the war, much like the Ad Council. Well, I remember very clearly as a, a young kid, like in the in the fifties and the late fifties, with Smokey the Bear, the Ad. So it went from posters then to television, right? In the early fifties. Well, you have you had posters and. Um, you know, it didn't start, television didn't start coming in until, you know, really getting more widespread until the early 1950s. And so Smokey is interesting because he starts off as, you know, being a very basic kind of bear when you first see him in the poster. But then slowly the Forest Service adds, um, you know, the hat and gives him the shovel and, and models him very much on the, um, you know, the after the Forest Ranger that exists. And he became very much a symbol of the U.S. Forest Service. Smokey has gone over the years through different um, iterations. They have changed the image of the bear much more than they have changed the slogan. So only you can prevent forest fires was with us well up until 2001. And then the slogan changed for the first time to only you can prevent wildfires. So it's very interesting to follow that. Just before, in last July, when the U.S. Forest Service changed the campaign again, um, Smokey was a very um, buffed uh, bear. He had a lot of upper muscle, you know, his torso was very muscular, you know, think A-Rod or something. And he had human fingers, um and lips and teeth. (laughs) But then, you know, that went on for a while, and then they decided, nah, let's go back to iconic Smokey with the forest ranger hat and the, 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 uh, you know, the shovel. And so he's changed back. Um, So it's just interesting to kind of see, follow the changes. Yeah, to follow the history, but let's go back to the title of the book, How McGruff and the Crying Indian Changed America. Okay, so uh, let's talk about that, I mean, specifically in terms of the, why you titled the book. Ah, well, let's be candid um, about Smokey should have been in the title, absolutely. But quite honestly, when you are dealing with the cover of a book, it is considered a marketing vehicle. And because it is considered a marketing vehicle where you're actually selling a book to make money, the client, in this case the U.S. Forest Service, had a right to read the chapter. And it read the chapter... And it didn't like the chapter, Catherine. And so as a result, it withheld rights um, to put Smokey's image on the cover. But what's fascinating about the Smokey campaign that your listeners should understand is the U.S. Forest Service can control not only the images, but the words. Why? Why would they also be able to control the words? Well, because Smokey Bear is one of the few advertising campaigns, if not the only one, that I've been able to identify in this country that's actually protected by a congressional act of Congress. And so we have the Smokey Bear Act of 1952. 
that gives the U.S. Forest Service the right to control all aspects of Smokey's image and words related to him, which is another fascinating story in and of itself. Yeah, it so is a fa- yeah. Smokey had- should be on the tide. It should be how Smokey McGruff and the Crying Indian changed America. But these are just some of the interesting backstories of writing a book that your listeners may or may not be interested in. No, so how long, Wendy, did it take you to write this book? Because obviously this is, it's not simply you sitting down and writing your no, memoirs. Uh, no. no, no, I covered this when, you know, I've covered nonprofits and nonprofit advertising um, a little bit when I was at the Washington Post, and you had mentioned the United Way story in your introduction, but I also covered it much more in depth when I became the D.C. Bureau Chief for Ad Week. So for nine years, um, the Ad Council was one of my beats. But, you know, quite frankly, I thought I knew these stories. But it was only until I started doing the research that I started to learn some of the history of these campaigns. And some of them are absolutely wonderful. Others are quite controversial. And it was the controversial aspects that um, a lot of the clients, like the U.S. Forest Service, were not interested in in having aired. Um, They, you know, they did not want that stuff out there. And so it was about three years in terms of in-depth research where I went to four university archives and two national archives. And I went back and I looked at the original documents prepared by both the clients and the advertising agencies. So what was the strategy? What were the fact sheets? What was the thinking at the time? And I really tried to place these campaigns in the context of what were the important historical and sociological and cultural forces going on at the time. And one of the controversial aspects of Smokey is that Smokey doesn't speak to every audience in this country um, as much as the Forest Service would like us to think that it does. Um, he doesn't. He, he is not beloved by everyone, which is one of the things I thought when I covered this for Ad Week. Yeah, I thought everybody loved Smokey the Bear. Like, what's not to love? What's, what's not, not to, to love? Like? Yeah. Smokey's message doesn't speak to people who live in the forests of northern New Mexico, as an example, or people who live off of the land in this country because they burn parts of the forests to plant crops. Well, Smokey's message says you can't start fires in forests. And it really has some controversial elements to it. Now, Smokey has done a lot of good, let's you know be clear. But on the other hand... There is this scientific argument that by suppressing forest fires for as long as the Forest Service did, aided by Smokey's message of preventing smoke forest fires, we actually allowed the underbrush in our forests to build up so that when we now have naturally occurring fires that are sparked by lightning, for example, they burn longer and they burn hotter. Hence, so do we blame that on Smokey the Bear? I ads. I mean, I'm being... It's, no. And right, it's an absolutely fair question to ask. But the fact that I even wanted to talk about the controversy was so problematic that I thought was fascinating. Mm-hmm. This isn't a question of blame. It's a, it's a question of educating readers about the true nature of the campaign. And it had this kind of reaction in some parts of this country. And in fact, there are fire experts in this country who call the fire suppression aspect of our wildfire problem the smoky effect. Mm. I'm not saying that. 
but some of our fire experts are to answer your question about whether or not the campaign is to be blamed for this or not. So these are the politics behind the Smokey the Bear. Correct. Uh, And I thought that was fascinating. And they should be reported and they should be covered. Give us another example. I mean, we got the Smokey the Bear, but okay, what about another one? Here's, I mean, I mentioned it, you mentioned it, obviously, the United Negro College Fund slogan. When did that come about? You know, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Is there any political stuff we should know about that? No, that that one's not as controversial. We'll get to the crying Indian because that that one clearly is. But the United Negro College Fund... um, let, let me take you back to the early 1970s in this country. We just came off of a tumultuous decade of race riots. Brown versus Board of Education was, had been on the books for a while. The, um, the word um, was integration. We are going to integrate blacks and whites in this country. And in the early 1970s, Vernon Jordan, who is now a lawyer in private practice, and he was also a special counsel to um, President Bill Clinton, was head of the United Negro College Fund at that point. And he went to the Ad Council and he asked for a campaign um, on behalf of historically black colleges in this country. It was a fundraising campaign because these colleges and universities were struggling. And at first, because of the factors I, I mentioned, the Ad Council was resistant. You know, the buzzword in the land is, you know, integration. Why do we want to... Um, promote a campaign that really talks about separation. We want to do something for historically black colleges and universities only. And so Vernon Jordan really had to fight for the better part of a day. But the Ad Council recognized the value of doing this because historically black colleges have played a critically important role in in black communities in this country and also played a role in um, the birth of the civil rights movement. And so there was a real need to continue these kinds of colleges and universities because they offered opportunities um, for black Americans that perhaps other institutions, you know, did not offer the same kinds of opportunities. So, you know, they won the day. The Ad Council went for it. And a copywriter that worked for the ad agency Young and Rubicam at the time, we now call it Y&R in New York City, went and visited these black colleges, and he came up with this incredible slogan. He was very interested in, in um, capturing attention, as all you know, advertising copywriters are. How do you cut through the clutter? How do you capture attention? And he came up with this slogan called, A mind is a hell of a thing to waste. But when he went into his boss, his boss hated it. And the only part he hated was the hell of a because he thought it was disrespectful, and he thought that that swearing profanity was not going to fly with historic, you know, with with black college presidents, ministers, and he was right. the The community really didn't care for this, so he changed it to "A mind is a terrible thing to waste," and that's how we got that slogan. And it's I, been an incredible campaign. Yeah, it is, and and I think you'd be hard put to find uh, most adults in this uni- in the United States who don't know that slogan. I mean, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. I mean that it's it's um yeah, it's, it's been pro- mangled by Dan Quayle. Um, it's yeah, been right. used by Monty Python in a movie. Mm-hmm. It's entered the cultural zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah, it, it really has. Okay, that's so. We have a few minutes left. What are we going to do? Let's talk about. Well, you talk about whatever, you know, the, the, the last ad that we're going to have an opportunity to discuss and the politics and the implications for it um, 
here uh, for about, us let, culturally. Let's talk about the crying Indian because this was okay, a great the crying one as well. Indian. Okay. And this is this is environmentally, you know, this is again early early 1970s where you've got the the birth of the you've got Earth Day, the birth of the Environmental Protection Agency, and you've got this very evocative spot. If your um, listeners um, recall, it's it's the Native American who who has the memorable tear rolling down his cheek after he views all of this garbage strewn litter on the beach, etc. Well, at the time, the campaign was quite controversial. And I'm like, why? Why would it be controversial when I'm doing the research? Because the advertising industry loved this. It won all kinds of awards. It's an incredibly memorable spot. And it turns out that the organization behind it, the client, the Ag Council's client in this case, is a Stanford, Connecticut-based group called Keep America Beautiful. Now, that sounds like a great name. I was always fascinated by it, Keep America mm-hmm. Beautiful. But it's not your grassroots environmental kind of Sierra Club. In fact, Keep America Beautiful is the packaged goods manufacturers in this country. So think your glad plastic baggies for your sandwiches, mm-hmm. your Reynolds aluminum foil, your American Chemistry Council, your Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola. These are the packaged goods manufacturers who produce the, the packaging that takes a one-way trip from the manufacturer to the consumer and into the garbage stream. And what the controversy was all about was, wait a minute, why is the Ad Council and Keep America Beautiful putting the responsibility for cleaning up litter and pollution on the backs of individuals only? What about the role that corporations and our federal government play? Don't they have a role in solving this problem? Why is the Ad Council giving a voice to only one side of this complicated issue? Which I thought was a fascinating um, discussion and again I go into that discussion and again the organization Keep America Beautiful not happy with my chapter doesn't let me put the Indian on the cover who turned out not to be a Native American anyway Iron Eyes Cody turned out to be an Italian <laughs> well, you, you're not the most popular I mean as, I imagine when you completed this book boy this not the most popular person after oh our, my heavens it, I did realize what I was getting into. I believed, Catherine, the publicity that the Ad Council puts out and the organizations put out about this. In some cases, it is certainly justified. Absolutely, we have to give credit where credit is due. But in other cases, people need to understand and be media literate about all of of the different aspects of the arguments. Yeah, well, we can do that through your book because I, I believed all of those myths actually until interviewing you and and, and reading the book. Um, I mean, so it's important for journalists like you to write about this. Now, you also write for MediaPost.com. What is MediaPost.com? Oh, MediaPost is a great. You should go on the web and look up MediaPost.com because it is one of the um, advertise one of the voices that covers the advertising industry advertising agencies um, the communications industry and it has a really strong online presence and it is um, you know kind of like the the trade um, publications that we have advertising age we have ad week but media post um, to kind of takes a broader look um, at all of our marketing communications which I think is fascinating MediaPost.com. Okay, that's good. And and are there any other websites that we should? I mean, obviously, besides reading your book, um, going to your website, uh, what other 
websites are going to be informative in the in a similar way that you've you know you've given us this information in the book and mediapost.com are there other ones well i've created one for the book that gives you a little bit about me and the book itself called um, www.howmcgruffchangedamerica.com and that could um, give a little bit more but if you're interested you know if your listeners um, and audience are interested in this area i highly recommend taking a look at um, um, ad week um, and ad age and one of my favorite um, blogs is www.adfreak adfreak.com which gives you kind of a daily dose of what's the latest ads advertising campaigns public relations kinds of efforts going on out there that's oh, written in a kind of yeah. tongue in cheek kind of uh, voice that I just love and use with my students all the time is that kind of a, a Stephen Colbert approach to ads? Correct. I love <laughs> okay. Tim Nudd. Um, he writes it, and it's just great. You, you talk about this is one of the references you give to your students. What has been the response of your students to your book? Oh, my students have been yeah. incredibly supportive. I've had wonderful graduate assistants who have absolutely loved researching it, and now uh, my current uh, two that are uh, that work for me get to uh, market, promote, and 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 just you know talk about it. And that's been a wonderful experience for them. They've helped me write pitches to the media. And so they've actually got to put together a whole portfolio by working on my book, which is something that they can use for their own resume and in their own careers, which I consider vitally important to this. It's not just about me and my book. Yeah, it's about you, your book, and your students. Absolutely. <laughs> right. So, all right, so you finished it. I mean, this book is out there. Uh, what's the next step? I mean, I mean, has this propelled you or motivated you to kind of go on with this you know, oh, absolutely. Sort of theme. Yeah. Have you ever heard of an organization called the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, otherwise no, known dis- as DISCUS? DISCUS. Okay. No, I haven't. That's the chief lobbying organization for the liquor industry in this country. And I'd like to do um, another book taking a look at how alcohol is marketed in this country. And I think it has all kinds of, of, of implications. And I'd like to take it all the way back to prohibition because I think the historical element is vitally important. And to start with prohibition and the forces of prohibition and then what has happened in the wake of prohibition and how we market alcohol in this country because young tastes have changed. Um, they're not drinking beer and wine as much as they have a preference for alcohol or shall we say booze and I find it fascinating because um, the discus people don't like us to call it booze or liquor because that implies that somehow it's stronger in alcohol quantity than beer and wine so it's a fascinating discussion equally fascinating stories there and that well, I'm gonna, what I, we have to say goodbye and I, I'm glad you brought that up well I'll be looking for that book we'll have, and, <laughs> it's going to take me time <laughs> You are, yeah, I can understand booze has kind of a bad connotation, but um, How McGruff and the Crying Indian Changed America History of Iconic Ad Council Campaigns is available now. Wendy Melillo, um, and she is a professor at American University in Communications. It's been great having you on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Um, We do have to say goodbye, and you are listening to... 
your social worker with a microphone. It's the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your host on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.